welcome back to Project 99. We are doing Iran-Contra Part 2 today. <laughs> which might turn out to be Part 18 or something. <laughs> yeah, which I don't even feel bad about. Every podcast I've ever listened to about Iran-Contra has like nine parts, but I think we can do it in three or four. But <laughs> you'll have to excuse uh, Mick and I today. We are both... Um, audibly sick recovering (laughs) yeah recovering our listeners must think we're like the most sickly people in the world but we do live in the in uh what do you call it the the climate of west virginia is like up and down like every day so yeah one day hot another day humid it was like 70 something one day and the next day it was like 59 i mean it's it's pretty up and down sometimes it's like um 80 degrees in october sometimes it's snowing (laughs) You just never know what you're going to get. But. It's definitely an October surprise every October. <laughs> <laughs> true enough. True enough. So today we're going to do a little bit of recap of what we talked about in our last episode. And then we're going to focus on the biographies of some of the main players involved in Iran-Contra. Um, and then if we have a little bit of time, we're going to go over uh, where we left off from 1985 on. Uh, but if not, we'll get to that in the next episode. So basically to recap our timeline from last on their last episode, we talked about how Nicaragua and Iran, even though they are worlds apart, um, they both experienced a revolution just before Reagan came into office. And um, it's kind of interesting because in both places, there was like a people's revolution. They put into power who they wanted in power. And... um, You know, during the Carter administration, there was kind of this um, examination of U.S. foreign policy. Like, geez, you know, from pretty much the end of World War II until now, we've just gone around and overthrown countries all over the world. That was probably a bad thing. And um, so we were kind of... Jimmy Carter was like, hey, U.S., mind your business. (laughs) Yeah, I think we were kind of like embarking (laughs) on the thought process that maybe you know, going around and bullying people and kicking in their doors and causing revolutions for war profiteers might not make us a lot of friends in the world. Which, God bless Jimmy Carter for trying that because we all know, like, I mean, clearly we all know the Reagan administration went right back on that. And then then you had George Bush, who was all about the, you know, the new world order, like spreading. You know, it's so crazy to me now that when I watch videos of, like, Reagan and Bush and they, like, outwardly talk about the new world order mm-hmm. like they use those words right and i'm like i always like thought about the new world order being like what anti-bush people right described right. you know like in a inflammatory way mm-hmm. to make him look bad like he wants a new world order like right. some kind of conspiracy talk but he he used those terms well see right the thing the thing is about the conservative movement um you know, there's there's basically always been like these two theories of of thought. There's like the bottom up democracies, like where the people control everything, which is like theoretically like communism. You know, you work in a commune, everybody works together, everybody shares the profits. There's nobody gets profit from someone else. Like that's like the theory is that the people decide, right? And then communally, like communism was corrupted by evil people. In regimes but like that's kind of it's kind of like a bottom-up philosophy and then you know there's a top-down philosophy where you have hierarchy and one guy at the top and there's a pyramid and everything kind of flows up to that monarch or to that imperial power so what happened with the United States was our original idea was anti-imperialism we because we we became a country rebelling against Britain but there was always this element in the country that was like, you know, monarchy was kind of nice, but we just didn't like that king and wanted wanted to have like monarchy in the United States. There's always been these two competing ideas in the United States. And as immigrants came here from all over the world, you had like workers party people that came from countries where there was communism was a thing and they believed that workers should and unions were affiliated with quote communist ideals. And then you had like people who came here who were imperialist in their thinking and wanted to be raging capitalists and, you know, industrialists and, you know, have all their little serfs working on their, I mean, there's always been those two competing ideas and that transfers over into politics. And so when you had like the conservatives in this country and they had the OSS and the 
the C, which became the CIA, their idea was capitalism reigns and we're going to go everywhere in the world and force capitalism on everyone because communism is evil. So we did that. And, and, you know, I think after Vietnam, a lot of people started to go like, maybe other people like to live a different fucking way than we do. Like maybe we shouldn't go to everywhere and say, we have to implement democracy as we see it into their country. So I think there was kind of like a start to us rethinking all that. Um, and I think that probably JFK being taken out was, was part of that, which by the way, we were supposed to get more records about JFK and, and they put it off. Yeah. I read they that. They put it off. So it's like, I just want to say one thing about that because I don't want to go off topic and I really could on JFK, but does it make any sense to anyone that the government simultaneously says Oswald acted alone and only crazy people think there's some big conspiracy, but also says we have to keep all the documents secret still 50 years on to protect terrible damage to national security. If Oswald was a crazy person who killed the president, what the fuck are you protecting? What national security interests are you protecting by hiding these documents? We all know the fucking CIA did it, okay? We all know that. It's obvious because you're still covering up for their asses, you know? Just like we're still covering up for Saudi Arabia who caused 9-11, who funded it, who caused it. And everybody from Bush to Trump and now Biden are still covering the Saudis' asses. And we'll get into that in this episode also because the Saudis help us out when we want it because they got boo-goo bucks. So anyway, um, we left off, like I said, with the Iranian Revolution and then um, the Sandinistas taking power in 1979 in Nicaragua. So then Reagan comes to power and Congress starts to pass these amendments to stop funding to the Contras for a couple of reasons, primarily because there are a lot of Contra rebels are involved in the drug trade and the United States doesn't want to be given money to drug dealers. And you would think that Reagan would have went along with that since his wife's thing was say no to drugs, right? That was right. her thing. Like every first lady has a thing and Nancy Reagan was just say no to drugs. But apparently Reagan couldn't just say no to the Contras who were fucking drug dealers. So when Congress started tightening the noose on the budget, um, they started making plans to do back channels to get weapons to the Contras. So that's the basis for the Iran-Contra scandal. Um, and, you know, we talked about how Reagan had the hostage crisis that magically resolved the day he became president. Um, and there was there's some conspiracy, which we don't believe is conspiracy. We believe it's hidden history that um, Reagan had back channels to the Iranian government to hold the hostages even longer and release them after he was in office to, you know, give him a big boost. And to also, because if the hostage got released while Carter was in office, it would help him. So, you know, there, there are some people who, who say that they are very well aware that Reagan had people working on holding the hostages longer to make him look good and Carter look bad. Anyhow, so the hostages get released, but all through Card, uh, all through Reagan's presidency, people keep getting fucking taken hostage. So if he did do that, um, you know, stop and think about that. You've just done he something. He basically set a precedence for, oh, if we take hostages, uh, that's something we can use and they will negotiate with us so we can get what we want. Right. And not only that, but now they have dirt on you. Right. Because anytime you act in a way that is, you know, scandalous. Compromise. Yeah, compromise. You, you compromise yourself. So if there was any recording or any proof or any documentation or anything that showed that Reagan covertly said, hey, hold these hostages for a little bit longer, do me a fave, and I'll help you out, that would have completely destroyed him. So therefore, I think part of the reason they kept taking hostages because they knew they could get away with it. Because what's he going to do? Go after them after he did all that stuff? So anyhow, dirty from the get-go. I never believe, oh, I can't say never because I was 10 when Reagan was president. And I did believe he was a good guy until I got, until I grew up. Um, but he, he was always, you know, I think he was an ideologue at the very least. He was insane about communism and fighting it everywhere in the fucking world. And, you know, when you're obsessed with an idea, you're very vulnerable to other people, you know, manipulating that and getting what they want out of you. 
So um, the only thing I guess I can say about him is he probably didn't profit any from all this dirty dealing that went on. But Yeah, he, that's the one difference in this scandal that a lot of other scandals that we talk about or that, you know, um, we hear about in the news is that most of the time there's a lot of dirty dealing going on so that people can make money, their buddies can make money, contractors can make money. And in this, really, that's not the case. No, there was, but I mean, not Reagan. Yeah, Reagan didn't make any Reagan money didn't from make money, it. Um, I don't think Oliver the, North... And McFarlane, I mean, really, when they came out at the other end of it, and we'll talk about later um, with the court proceedings and how who got held responsible, they didn't come out any richer for this. You know what I mean? But they did achieve their goal of funding the Contras, which is what they wanted. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I don't know. It's just interesting. You Usually, you see all these players that are involved are all also lining their pockets. Mm-hmm. And it's like, out of all the people we talk about, I mean... Reagan and McFarland and North, just the top three, none of right. them came th- out richer right. for and it. And I think that's how you can kind of distinguish between people who are ideologues and people who are profiteers. Right. And right. sometimes those two things overlap. But generally speaking, I think that Oliver North was this, um, you know, gung-ho G.I. Joe guy who had like a fantasy of, of, and he lived out his fantasy of going and, you know, being a soldier. That's He romanticized the idea of being a soldier. And um, he never wanted to retire. So when he went into government, he just basically became, um, you know, because when we get into it a little bit more, the supply of arms and weaponry to the Contras wasn't really enough for him. He actually started to get involved in the operational aspects of their war. And I think he liked it. I think he liked the the Yeah, intrigue. Oliver North went as far as in certain dealings uh trying to make deals to send american specialists over there to train soldiers mm-hmm. and which i don't think was his idea but when he was asked to provide them like wasn't against it and tried to get into oh, okay well we witnessed this we should let them know so because it can give right. them an advantage right yeah and everybody else was like um ollie no like that's not what we're here for mm-hmm. you know what i mean like we're not we're not getting that deeply involved, mm-hmm. but he was all about it. Well, you run the risk too. Like the more contacts you have with people and, you know, they got his, some of his notes, even though he was the master shredder, like Ollie North was known for the big shredding uh, festival that he had, where he was literally shredding documents while they were looking at other documents. He was shredding them like right in the other room. Um, so he was he was a cover up guy, but but underneath of it, he's kind of proud of what he did. Like he he test when he testifies, he he doesn't um, slink around it. He wants to be this uh, hero that he envisions himself to be in his own mind. Delusional, yeah. He I mean, is they, delusional. They because completely um, cannot see the problem in the fact that they completely stepped over our democracy and our system of checks and balances right they don't they don't see that at all and i think that like i think that people like ronald reagan and surely bud mcfarlane absolutely saw that that's what they were doing they Mm -hmm. knew that they were walking around Mm -hmm. they knew that's what they were doing Mm -hmm. and i think that partially either they i don't know if i would say feel bad but at least worried about the consequences mm-hmm. of being caught with that. Oliver North just went in gung ho. I don't. I really don't think he even considered it. Like, I well, don't know. If, I think he was I less started, careful than everybody until the really end. Was. Because he was. Because he kept diaries and he talked about his relationship with Manuel Noriega, who was a huge drug dealer. Yeah. I mean, I just at the beginning of researching Iran Contra, I looked at Oliver North like he was the scapegoat, and they planted all this on him, and he kind of took the fall for it because he thought he was doing something patriotic. But the more that I learned about him, the more I see that he was deeply invested in the cause and um, micromanaged so much of the Mm -hmm. actual like fighting part. Yeah, all of it. I mean, he was right there. Like, all right, we're taking these weapons here. I mean, exchange Mm -hmm. of money. Like he was involved in all of it. Firsthand man. Like Mm -hmm. he was the runner. Right. (laughs) I mean, if Ronald Reagan was the the kingpin. Oliver North was the guy peddling on the street, like mm-hmm. for sure. So he was the original Blackwater guy. He was he's uh, Eric Prince. He was the original Eric Prince yeah. of his day. Um, but the thing is, you know, they started out um, having to arrange these arms sales through third party governments, and they were always running the risk, right, that somebody was going to record them, that somebody was going, some bank transaction was going to be found out. 
And I mean, eventually a lot of those things did lead to their, um, you know, the exposure of it all. So they decided to create a corporate enterprise to handle all the monetary transactions that went back and forth so that it couldn't be traced back. And I think when you see that, um, that's really the, that's really the first, I want to say, step towards, um, I don't know, I don't know what to call it, like private, a private, a CEO government, you know, um, our government is supposedly owned by us, um, our tax dollars fund it, and we have right to information. There are processes we can go through to try to obtain information from our government about what it's doing through our representatives, through FOIA. So I think that there's always been this desire among these ideologues to get outside of government. And sometimes they do that through black ops and the CIA obviously did a lot of dirty, 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 dirty shit. And that all came out, um, a lot of it came out in the 70s. You know, a lot of their, what they called the family jewels were um, revealed in the church committee investigations. Um, and all the assassination attempts, the government overthrows, like it really exposed the CIA for the horrible agency that they are. But instead of like doing away with it, they just, you know, said, we'll change. <laughs> and they didn't really. Um, and like I said, I think Jimmy Carter kind of tried to um, redo the whole idea of foreign policy. And it just, you know, he had too many things working against him, corporate interests and whatnot. So anyways, um, what we wanted to do was talk about some of the characters that are involved here because you can kind of see when you start looking at their bios um, how they formed the perfect team to effectively pull off this operation. And, you know, just like we said about uh, the Iranian Revolution and the Nicaraguan Revolution, history repeats itself. And, you know, sometimes when I was younger, like in my early 20s, and I would hear somebody appointed in government, and my parents would, or my grandparents would say, oh, that's so-and-so, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, well, they just start, they just started the job. No, 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 no. No one ever just starts the job. They're all rehashed from other administrations, previous administrations, um, and, and they're brought back because they've proven themselves to be the type of person that you want in that position. So like when John Bolton was hired by Trump, immediately the media is like, oh God, John Bolton, warmonger. And it's like they brought up all the stuff that he did before because he had a history and that's why he was chosen. Um, so I just kind of wrote the names on the board here and they're not in a specific order of importance. Um, but we'll start with Richard Secord. Um, and I, he was kind of, he kind of stood out to me because he was the one that was, he and Hakim, who was the Iranian arms dealer, were really the ones that developed this corporate entity that, um, and the Swiss bank accounts to hide all the money, like they were neck deep in that. They ran it. They owned it. Um, and when they were under questioning, when, when Secord was under questioning, um, he was kind of a, a prick. Like they were asking him like, basically, so, you know, you were skimming money off the top and making profit while supposedly you were doing all this to aid the Contras because you believed in their cause, but really you were profiteering from it. And, you know, he tries to deny it and tries to say that he wasn't concerned with that. But after it was all blown up and came out in public, there was like $8 million that was still sitting in the Swiss bank account. <laughs> and I mean, he was trying to keep the United States government from getting access to those records. He went to, to Switzerland and filed court cases to try to keep it secret what was going on. Um, and they questioned him about that. And they're like, so let me get this straight. You hired people. You incurred debt. You went over there, you filed these court cases to keep secret money that you claim you didn't even care about. I mean, it was obvious as the nose on my face that he was lying through his teeth. He did want to make money. He wanted to make money. And Hakeem, this guy, Hakeem, I mean, he's like the perfect, in your mind, like the perfect shadowy figure, right? He's meeting Ollie North in bathrooms and shit. 
doing these backroom deals. But um, they created this, this, this operation. And so when I went back and I looked at uh, the history of, of Secord, so when you look at Secord, he was one of the first people that went in with, with, into Vietnam before we were officially in the war. So he's got a long history of covert operations, um, of going into countries. And it's funny because at that time, we were developing, the military was developing, um, you know, specific units that were designed to fight guerrilla warfare, like what we, our soldiers experienced when we officially went into Vietnam. And then by the 80s, 20 years later, we're actually funding <laughs> guerrilla warfare in Nicaragua. Um, but yeah, so he went, they, we went in there, and the, the original reason was um, to help the French maintain control of their empire. But then later on, it was because, you know, of communist influence. And we were trying to keep the, the Chinese and, you know, communism out of uh, Southeast Asia. So we went into countries and tried to push it back further north and keep the South, you know, democratic um but it was obviously a big disaster but you know so when you look at Richard Secord and his um he always had this appreciation that we had a reason to do what we were doing and it was really nobody's business even the American people like to me that's his mindset and then by the 80s I think he was um you know he just I think he he was like kind of for the cause but at the same time it was about the money in 81 to 83 he uh served as the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for International Security Affairs as well. That was his official title. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, and like I said, all these all these characters portray themselves as freedom fighters. I mean, Ronald Reagan compared the Contras to our founding fathers, <laughs> for fuck's sake. I mean, really? That, yeah. <laughs> but anyhow. You yeah, know. I think we'll get in later, too, if we... Uh, I'm sure in one of the later episodes, um, talking about the, because uh, just recently I watched the, what is it called? Kill the Messenger and mm -hmm. about dark alliances and all of that and um, kind of the fallout of the drugs right, that right, were involved right. in that. So we'll mm -hmm. probably talk about that in another episode. Um, I mean, there's so many facets that you can look at Iran-Contra through. I mean, you can look at it through the you know the 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 evolution of government secrecy um and, and the re-emergence of the old cia the one that believes in overthrowing governments um it was like they had that little period of like i don't know what, what do you want to call it like um where you feel guilt remorsefulness like they had that little period where they pretended to be remorseful for all the bad shit they did but I think they kind of like telling everybody about it. Like when you watch the congressional hearings where they're talking about the, the gun that can give somebody a heart attack and shit and all the ways they try to kill Castro, like they, they look like excited little kids finally getting to tell all their dirty little tricks they did when their parents weren't home. Like it, it doesn't seem like they feel bad about it. But um, but yeah, we'll, we'll have to get into the Contras and how they weren't uh, the angels that Reagan tried to make them out to be because just, just watching that Dark Alliances... Um, which I knew a little bit about Gary Webb before, but yeah, the Contras being these, yeah. these perfect freedom like fighters. freedom fighters mm -hmm. that Reagan made out is just not true at all. And we'll talk about we'll talk about that in a later episode. But who else do you have on your list here that we're going to cover? So I guess the next one is William Casey and William Casey. Oh, the only other <laughs> thing about uh, Richard Secord was that he was the he was the enterprise guy. Yeah, the like enterprise. The, yeah. Quote unquote, the enterprise. Yeah. Yeah. That the spooky names. I, I swear they had like shell companies. They had a lot of shell companies, though. There were different ones by different names um, that they were questioning him about. And I'm sure like if you had all the time in the world, you could get into all the nitty gritty details. But basically, they were just setting up these companies as private entities and having donors give large sums of money and um, to fund the Contras. And I think that the, I personally believe that the CIA was involved in the drug trade, that they made money from the drugs. Absolutely. I mean, I mean, stop and think about it. If you're willing to break international law, your own law that you said, don't sell weapons to Iran and you're going to break your own laws, do that criminal activity, cover it up with other criminal activity to fund a, a secret war that Congress has said that you're not allowed to do. Like, how many laws have you already broken? You think the CIA gives a shit about selling drugs to make money? Fuck no, they don't care about that. These They will murder people. 
if it suits their goal and their objective. The CIA doesn't, they have, they don't have a moral conscience. I mean, give me a fucking break. So the fact that they would infest the country with drugs if it meant they could make more money for their operations, hell yeah, they're going to do that. So as far as I know, there wasn't any like hardcore proof, but I don't know. I mean, I think Gary Webb had some, you know, he had some documents to back up what he was saying. I believe that what he said was true. But we'll go into uh, Gary Webb's story and probably uh, Danny Casolario too in another episode because there's a whole lot with that as well. But next on our list, you have uh, William Casey. William Casey. William Casey started out his career as an accountant. And interestingly, you know, we hear a lot about the Panama Papers and Mm -hmm. the tax shelters. Well, he was kind of the originator of the concept of, hey, you can shelter your money from taxes. Like he was kind of the guy who thought that shit up. You know, which puts him right up there with the post-it note guy in the business world. (laughs) You can't be having money without a way to shelter it. You know, it just doesn't happen. Um, And so, and this was in response to like the New Deal um, regulatory things uh, that, you know, rich people are going to pay their fair share. The New Deal, we're going to take care of like regular working Americans. William Casey, too, while he had ties to Nixon, he served as the uh, head of the CIA under Reagan, just for context there. Uh So, and he was Nixon's chairman or, uh, of, of the uh, SEC, mm. Security and Exchange Commission, from 71 to 73. Uh, but he worked in the OSS during World War II um, as head of secret intelligence branch in Europe. So, I mean, that's, that's Dulles stuff right there. That's Alan Dulles shit right there. You know what I mean? Um, these guys lived for covert espionage they, they just it was like the era of the spy the spy master was like the james bonds like they loved this shit they glorified it um and it wasn't always for a good reason um as we've talked about many times so casey was called as a prosecution witness in the trial of john mitchell who was attorney general um now this was under during nixon um and Maurice Stans, who was the Commerce Secretary, um, in an influence peddling case stemming from um, financier Robert Vesco's uh, $200,000 contribution to the Nixon reelection campaign. So, you know, he's he was called as a prosecution witness. Who do you call as the prosecution witness? I mean, somebody who knows some shit about it, right? Um, and so... It's like anybody that was involved in any way whatsoever in the Nixon presidency (laughs) who worked in the Nixon presidency, they were all dirty as hell. So that's some of his background. Um, And he also served as the Undersecretary of State for Economic Affairs uh, from 1973 to 74. He was chairman of Import-Export Bank of the United States, 74 to 76, and was also a member of Nixon's Foreign Intelligence Advisory Board, 75 to 76 um and so he was he was there for literally everything that the cia did um in foreign policy from you know the 50s onward um yeah and from what i understand casey is one of the ones that didn't have to uh basically answer for his crimes when they did the trials of Iran Contra because he had like a tumor, a brain tumor or something. Well, yeah, like a couple of days before he was supposed to testify, he had a stroke and several seizures and was taken to the hospital. And they said that he had a previously undiagnosed brain tumor. And um, according to what I read, like he wanted to get radiation on it. And they were like, no, 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 you have, we have to do surgery. And then they did the surgery and then he died, you know, shortly after. So he didn't end up ever... Did never have to answer for his you know, crimes. Man, do you know all the secrets? Oh man, I can't imagine. It makes it hard to believe they didn't use that like heart attack gun and like yeah. pointed at his head or something to make his, <laughs> his vessels explode. Like he's just a man who knew where every body was probably buried. Yeah, I can't even imagine if he would have spilled it. But I mean, he was dying, so you know what right. I mean. Like maybe he would have. And you know Bob Woodward, right? Who's written all these books about Trump? Well, he he notoriously writes about he he and uh um. Who was the other guy? Bob Woodward and uh, Bernstein were the ones that wrote that broke open the Watergate scandal of Nixon. So they've been writing about these right wing scumbags forever. 
And um, he claimed that he went in and talked to Casey before he died. Um, and, and of course, Casey's wife says that's bullshit. He never went in and talked to him, but <laughs> he claims that he went in there and saw him for like four minutes before he died or something. Um, so anyways, uh, Reagan made uh, Casey the director of the CIA, of course. Um, and the outgoing, uh, and then of course, we have George Bush, who had been the CIA director. Right. And moved what, up to VP. Well, what's interesting about it is Reagan, from what I've read, wasn't really into George H.W. Bush that kind of way, like the vice president kind of way. But Casey was like, no, 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 like encouraged the pairing of the two of them, which makes perfect sense. Like Casey's a CIA guy, Bush is a CIA guy, Reagan's a dupe. An ideological right. dupe. Like, can you see the recreation of the Trump White House right here? Right, yeah. I mean, that 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 lineup is a perfect example of the pipeline. You know, it's like yeah. CIA to VP to president. And then they're, they were all thanking their lucky stars that, you know, George Bush went from CIA to VP to president because when he was president, he ended up turning around and, like, pardoning all the people involved in Iran-Contra. Of Iran course. When it was all said and done. That's so. what they do. The Watergate people, some got pardoned too. I mean, yeah. it's just like ridiculous. Like nobody at the top, at the very top, ever pays no. for their crimes, okay? But the outgoing CIA director at the time, um, Stansfield Turner, called William Casey's appointment by Reagan the, quote, resurrection of Wild Bill, referring to Bill Donovan, the eccentric head of the OSS, who Casey greatly admired you know, because this was the wild heyday of the CIA when they were just running around. Running rampant. Flipping governments over. Doing left what they right. wanted. <laughs> I shouldn't say left and right. I should say left to right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's what they like to do. Um, so anyways, uh, and then it said, according to Rhoda King. Now, this is often the the uh, this, the Wikipedia that I've read. According to Rhoda K Koenig. Casey didn't want director of CIA and only agreed to take the position if he could have a hand in shaping foreign policy rather than simply reporting the data on which it was based. So he was like, uh, okay, I'll be CIA director, but only if I can have my fingers like deep in this shit. Because if not, like I'm not interested. He didn't just want to report on intelligence around the world. He wanted to do covert operations. And from the very beginning of the CIA, this was a, a division. Some people wanted the CIA just to be an intelligence gathering operation. So you would have spies, you'd have operatives out there, but they would only be there for the purpose of letting you know what the enemy's doing. And then there was another side, there was the Alan Bella side, which was like, no, 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 once we know, like we should be doing all kind of like covert operations to like make the world the place we want it to be. So, I mean, there's always been that back and forth, but I think with Reagan, it swung hard back the other way, obviously, because you've got, like, Ollie North running around, like, funding guerrilla warfare in Central, you know, I mean, it's just, it's very disheartening that, you know, you think that after Kennedy was assassinated and, like, people kind of thought that there was a secret plot in the government, that it was like we were on the verge of waking up to getting our country back, and then it goes right back to the right-wingers, <laughs> so, um, so we already talked about the fact that, oh, one other thing about him that I thought was kind of weird, and this will probably be for another conspiracy episode, but it said Casey was a Catholic and a member of the Knights of Malta, which I was like, what the fuck is that? I don't even know what the Knights of Malta is. It's a sovereign military order of Malta, and it's officially the sovereign military hospitalier order of St. John of Jerusalem and Rhodes and Malta. That's the long name of it. It possesses no territory. So it does, it's, a, it's a sovereign entity, but it, there's no country associated with it. And it says, um, is a sovereign entity of international law and maintains diplomatic relations with many countries. Its capital is Rome. That's super weird. Yeah. It's like, let's just form a country without a country. <laughs> Wow, it's really fucking weird. And I like, never like thought I'd run into that. I was like, what the fuck? So then I started looking it up and it's like, I don't know. It's just a very weird, weird thing. But you know, when you start getting into like so many things fill in your head, you're like, okay, well, the Vatican 
they're kind of a global organization. And then you got the, when, when, uh, Alan Dulles was, was in his heyday as a spy, right? Where was he based out of? Switzerland. He was a lawyer. What did he do? He helped people to hide their money in Swiss bank accounts. You know, he, and, and it's like all of these things of intrigue happen in specific areas. And you're like, like you were saying about the globalist, everybody was like in the eighties, everybody's like, Oh, that goddamn globalist. We don't want these global, we'll have UN trucks rolling down our streets. You know what I mean? And, when, and they said the same thing when Obama came in, Oh, it's the UN trucks are going to come in FEMA. The federal government's evil. It's part of the global whatever. But then like, what about the new world order shit? Right. Like, yeah. They don't connect those at all. But it's because it's Republican. Right. Yeah. The only person, <laughs> the only person who was screaming up and down that George Bush was a globalist was Alec Jones. And strangely, people were like, oh, my God, it's the Republicans, too. <laughs> <laughs> they, it was like uh-huh. they never thought the globalist. They always as- associated globalists taking over with communists taking over they never thought of it like with the workers unions when you go back and read about like the the people trying to unionize in the united states they were called enemies of the united states they were communists they were you know labor unions were communists that were trying to take over the country and it's so weird that like it took alex jones to make people see that no republicans they're the biggest globalists ever it really is a shame he went batshit crazy. Yeah, but anyway. it really is. So then we got Thomas Kleins. Thomas Kleins is another one who's been around forever. He was involved in Operation Mongoose, which was the attempt to overthrow Cuba and kill Castro. He was involved in the uh, overthrow of Chile with Allende. He was involved in the secret war in Laos and now in Nicaragua. So Thomas Kleins, been around the block. Longtime player. He is the overthrow king. So he was involved in um, Iran-Contra. Then you got Ollie North. So Ollie North, pretty much as Juke was talking about, is like your quintessential, envisions himself as a movie star, G.I. Joe guy, going around the world, doing these crazy missions. And, you know, I, I do have to say, when he was in Vietnam, he served two tours in Vietnam, and when he was over there, he was literally in the, fi- in the midst of the fighting, he got several medals for his, um, you know, bravery under fire. He wasn't some chicken shit who was just out to make money. I mean, he really lived the whole soldier experience. Like, it was it for him. The, the excitement of it, the perceived, like, I'm a brave soldier thing. Like, I just think he was so drunk on that whole idea of being, like, a hero soldier. And he wanted to be that. So, to me, Ollie North is a scumbag, too, but, like, he was driven by other motives. You know what I mean? Yeah. But, I mean, it, you know what they say, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. I don't think that Oliver North was um, necessarily trying to be malicious towards America when he was stomping on our democracy. I just think he was brainwashed into thinking he was do right, doing the right thing. Right, right. And the whole theme of the Iran Contra from Reagan on down, no matter what their motives or individual motivations were, the philosophy was... The end justifies, justifies the means. The means. Yep. No matter what, the end justifies the means. And you find people rationalizing, like you were saying about in the testimony, when they literally admitted that democracy was in their way. They had to do all this because they had a mission to do, and the mission was more important than the Constitution. That's important to note, too, because it's the, it's the first time, at least for me, where you see them openly creating this idea that congress and the senate are somehow this evil entity standing in the way of what what truly needs to be done for our country which we see repeated now a lot i mean look at the trump administration anytime anything that didn't didn't go exactly their way you know when we just had the january 6th insurrection they were talking about you know handcuffing these people and putting them on trial you know what i mean Mm -hmm. like they they really made these people the enemy standing in the way of what America needs to to be the best country that it is and I'm just like I don't know it was hard it was hard to go through the Iran Contra thing and not see that idea sprout there and repeated you know just recently under the Trump administration that, that the the government even though it's literally what upholds our democracy 
And I'm not patting our government on the back. I think that there's a lot of fucking broken things in it and a lot of people standing in the way of things. But this is the system we have. Right. You know, and the, the way to, you don't just go behind its back. Democracy is a messy backs. process. But, you know, there, the, the thing is, you can't just demonize it because if you get rid of it, then what do you have? Mob rule? Exactly. And it's like, you, exactly. see, you see that idea sprout there that they are the enemy. And they don't talk about, well, if we don't have it, then what? They don't talk about that part. They just talk about this is the enemy. Yes. And it's it was born here in Iran-Contra and all these trials and hearings. Mm-hmm. And in the Trump era, again, I mean, the when they were doing the whole in Russia, the Russia investigation, I'm like, this is like Reagan 2.0. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. People the obstructionism. Are yeah, all of it. All right. of it. So. And right now we're seeing it again with, um, and every time that these right wing entities in our government um, come upon an obstacle, unlike the Democrats who literally to me feel like they have no plan whatsoever. Right-wingers look at every um, mission, every purpose that they have, every, every goal they have. They look at it as, okay, I have to get from point A to point B. And they throw all of their heart into it. And then when they fail because of, I don't know, democracy, they figure out a way to get rid of whatever made them fail. They are like an unstopping virus. They'll mutate. To, to accomplish their goal the next time around. So, like, for example... It's kind of crazy, too, when you think about the two parties. Um, I always think of this meme, and I, I, I hate that my brain simplifies things into jokes like this because they're, like, really complex ideas, and I'm like, oh, it makes me think of this meme. But it's like, you know, workers in America are like, we want livable wages and health care, and Republicans are like, no. And Democrats are like, no, Black Lives Matter, hashtag gay rights. Like, right, <laughs> And yeah. I'm like... It's strange that when you look at the two parties in our system, I don't think the Democrats really have any mission at all. No. There's no covert underlying. Like, they they preach that they're, like, with social issues, Mm -hmm. but we all know that's just pandering. Mm -hmm. They don't really give a shit about poor people or working people or black people or gay. Like, they don't care. They Mm -hmm. don't care about any of that Mm -hmm. shit. So their main motivation is they just make money where they can. They shake hands in all the right places. Mm -hmm. That's it. The Republicans, on the other hand, while they do make deals that line their own pockets, also have this mission mm-hmm. that they've always had to like, you know, just the same Reagan shit repeated over and over again. So it's like, yeah, all politicians are shaking hands and making deals to make money. But the Democrats, I don't think, have any really, uh, you know, they, they don't used have to. a, they they don't have a message. They don't have a mission. They're not trying to accomplish anything other than just being scumbags. And when I say, when I say, um, you know, Democrats, I don't like the parties have changed their platforms over the years. So, um, I would, I don't really know how to describe them to explain the division that I, in my mind of the parties, but basically Democrats to me should be like the party of labor, like back in the, you know, times when we were trying to organize labor, um, and there was a lot of there was a lot of socialist and communist influence because they had figured out how to organize their labor force in other countries. They come over here and they're like, listen, this is how you organize your labor. And um, so a lot of the unions, once the unions got formed and became powerful, the Democrats clinged on to the unions. You couldn't see a Democrat go on on the campaign trail without talking about the support of the AFL-CIO, without the teachers union. They were big in unions. And the Republicans were pissed off because all the unions would donate to the Democrats and it was a big source of campaign money for them. So they started to attack unions on the idea that they were corrupt, their leaders weren't helping their people, they were really just taking all the money to get in these corrupt politicians. And that's how you start hearing people talk about all this uh, propaganda about unions being horrible is, was right-wing shit, them talking to, to tear down unions. Reagan wanted to destroy unions. He hated unions. Um, but then, so then, but the right wing has always been your industrialists, your capitalists, your fascists. They've always been the right wing people. Yeah, I just mean on top of like, you know, we will destroy any country if it makes way for us to build factories or exploit labor. Right. Which is all about lining pockets. Right. It comes with that, that true belief that they just think that they're entitled to it and that like the sure. world, that the platform that we have for America should be everywhere. Mm-hmm. I mean, they like truly believe that shit. If you ask a socialist or or a true like um, liberal, I don't even know what term to use, but if you ask a, a democratic socialist, okay, 
What do you think was the greatest time in American history? They're going to say the labor movement, right? If you ask a Republican or right winger, what was the greatest time in America? They're going to say the industrial period when labor was shit on, when there was child labor, when industrialists like Andrew Carnegie and JP Morgan, all these rich bankers, when they were rich out of their fucking minds, that was the Rockefellers. That was the greatest time in American history to them. They love the idea of the super wealthy running the country. So that's your division right there. And this just goes to show, like when you get Reagan and you get all these people in office who believe that elites should be running the country and they don't think they should have to comply with the fucking Congress. Fuck the Congress. We're the elites. We're in charge and we're going to make shit happen. That's the mentality. And the fact that Secord went and created a, 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 a privatized government to do his operations just shows how far they will go to get their shit done. Um, and you got your Ollie Norris, you got your good little soldiers who go and do what they're told. And then you got your George H.W. Bushes, who are the Yale men, who are the skull and bones guys, the secret society guys, the globalist people, <laughs> internationalists. That's George Bush. That's Donald Trump. That's the people who put the capitalist empire above, you know. And like you said, now you got fucking Biden who pretends that he cares about people. What the fuck has he done? What has he done since he's been in there? But sitting around crying with his thumb up his ass, he's trying to get Republicans on board. Fuck that, dude. You're not getting anything done and you're looking like a dork. And then, and worse than that, an insincere dork. Because you won't even destroy the filibuster when it means our right to fucking vote. So, sorry, I didn't mean to go on a rant about him. But anyway, so yeah, then you got Poindexter. Poindexter replaced McFarlane. In like 1985, McFarlane supposedly says he was against the arms He resigned, deal, yeah. And he resigned. Bud McFarlane's one I still have like, mm, I don't know, I kind of hold out on because he was definitely involved on a deep level. It's been a, a lot of the stuff that I've read in this book that we've been using to get a lot of our information called the Iran-Contra puzzle. Um, Ollie North like ran a lot of stuff by Bud McFarlane and there's like not even any proof that McFarlane signed off on it and Ollie North like did it anyway. Right. And I feel like McFarlane this whole time was kind of holding out. I don't know whether to protect himself or because he really just wasn't sure about doing any of this to begin with. <coughs> um, I feel like he's just kind of always been like, guys, I'm not sure. Like he definitely didn't put a stop to it. But at the same time, I don't think he was full bore the way that Ollie North and, uh, you know, William Casey and some of the other players were, which I think his resignation proves that, that he was just like, listen, this has gone on long enough. And I don't know if that's for his own moral values or just he was like, nah, this shit is going to get exposed and I am not being involved. Like, who knows? But well, you know, too, it's interesting. Like, <clears throat> if you write down where all these people came from, a lot of them came from Texas. I don't know what that fucking says, but a lot of them came from Texas. They went to the Naval Academy. They were Marines. <clears throat> I mean, you kind of see like the pipeline when you start looking at all their bios. You know, you start seeing similarities. You start seeing where so-and-so introduced so-and-so to so-and-so. You know what I mean? It's a tangled web. Right, which is the whole point of doing these like short bios of these people is just to, just to show that, that this is what journalists should be doing now in politics. When someone gets appointed to a position, you should take that person and see what they're their details are what have they done what have they been involved in because this administration is a great example of it because you can just see the i mean two of the main people came straight from cia mm -hmm. you know what i'm saying like you can look into the backgrounds of these and be like all right maybe this isn't all like as good as it seems right but i don't i mean i'd assume that back then is the same as now that you could people who supported reagan you could put the facts right in their face like listen this guy is not a good guy and reagan's appointing him like this, this looks bad on him. You should see this as a red flag. And they'd probably just be like, no, you're wrong. Like, Well, but here's the thing. Who would see it as a red flag? Me and you? Not people that support it. Not people that think it's America's job to go around the world overthrowing countries. Because there's a lot of people who support that shit. Yeah. The one thing about Trump was he was opposite in that fact that he claimed that he wanted to bring our soldiers home. He didn't want us to be the policemen of the world. Yada, yada, yada. But also in some other statements that he made, he was kind of like, why should we go fight these wars for people when they're not paying us? 
So it almost seemed like he was saying, I'm not really against wars. I'm against us not making profit from wars. Like if we can make it a business and bring like, say, Eric Prince in to like make moolah from war, I'll run our soldiers out to fight in any war as long as we're making money from it. Like weird shit he would say like that. So I don't, by no means was he a pacifist or did he believe in other countries' sovereignty? He just was upset that we were spending all of our money fighting other people's wars and he wanted us to pay them to pay for it. Um, point so Poindexter <clears throat> as I said he went to the Naval Academy with John McCain and McFarland they all went there um, I don't know if they knew each other but they were all um, I think there around the same time so then Poindexter um, got a, he got a master's degree from the Naval Academy and got a PhD in nuclear physics from California Institute, Institute of Technology and then he became the National Security Advisor um, for Reagan. Um, and he was he was involved in Operation Urgent Fury, which was the overthrow of the leftist government in Grenada. So um, he was involved in that. And then um, there was the Achille Lauro incident, which, you know, I remembered uh, when I heard Achille Lauro, I was like, yeah, I can remember hearing about that, but I couldn't remember like what it all was about. And then I started reading, I was like, holy crap. So what happened was these Palestinians took, a, they were on a ship, an Italian ship, cruise ship. They took, they took, they ended up taking it hostage. Their goal really was to go and do some operation in Israel. But they get to Egypt, tons of people get off the ship and go see the pyramids. There was like 97 people left on the ship. Somehow they get uh, busted out that they're, you know, on this mission to go attack Israel. So they take these 97 people on the ship hostage. During the hostage situation, they kill an elderly Jewish man who's in a wheelchair, throw him over the side of the ship. Um, and then as the hostage situation starts to unfold, um, the, the ship is uh, parked, I guess you'd say. <laughs> docked. Docked, sorry. Yeah, docked uh, in Egypt, right? So they're like, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? They start to try to negotiate the release of the passengers. The one of the terrorists holds a gun to the head of the captain who's in communications via radio. And he, he tells that all the governments that are, you know, trying to resolve what's happening, that all the passengers are fine. They haven't hurt anybody. Everyone's being treated well. Um, so the Egyptian government says, OK, well, if they haven't hurt anybody, let's just negotiate them to release the hostages and we'll get them over here. And we'll put them on trial for whatever, for like taking hostage or whatever. But let's just get it resolved. So anyways, um, they get all the people off the ship and they <clears throat> take the, um, the, the hostage takers into custody. So the Egyptians really don't want any deal with it because um, they got a lot of pressure from people that support the Palestinians, right? That view these hostage takers as heroes. And at that point in time, there wasn't any knowledge that they had killed anybody. So the Egyptian government was going to just say, well, like, listen, you know, they... Um, but they didn't kill anybody. And I think their plan was just to say, look, they left the country. We don't know where they are. But um, intelligence sources told everybody else in the world, the United States, Israel, everybody, no, like they are still in Egypt and they killed somebody. So we need to get them. And Israel wanted to bring them back there to put them on trial. And everybody was like fighting over who was going to get them. So um, the Egyptian government, talked to the Italian government and said, listen, it was on your ship. The crime happened on your ship, which makes it an Italian jurisdiction. We're going to put them on a plane and we're going to send them back to you. And they could be put on trial in Italy. So everybody's like, okay. But the U.S. is like, no, 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 no. We want them. So for no good reason, we're not involved at all. Let's I think that the man who was killed was Jewish, but I think he was an American citizen. Mm. So anyhow, um, the plane is in the air. Oliver North is involved in this operation to intercept the plane. This is when he's still in the military. Intercepts the plane and forces it to land in, in a NATO base in Italy. Complete violation of international law. They had an absolutely, the United States had no fucking right to do that. But they did. They forced this plane to land. It lands on this NATO base. And... SEAL Team 6 is sent in to fucking secure the terrorists and bring them 
out to the U.S. for justice. So now we're doing a kidnapping mission of kidnappers. But anyway, um, so fucking 300 carabinieri, which are no joke, like show up and are like, yeah, no, you're not taking them. They are here for us to put them on trial. And so the U.S. was like, fuck, fuck, what do we do? Because the only way we're going to get these people is if we kill a bunch of Italians because <laughs> they got fucking guns too and they say that they're staying here. So we backed off. But we almost created an international incident with an ally, Italy, over our crazy fucking harebrained idea to send up fighter jets to force this fucking plane to land. Like, what are we thinking? So that was, and Ollie North was involved in that. So there you go. Um, and so it was Poindexter. So I thought that was kind of crazy. That is um, fucking crazy. Yeah, crazy. But then what happened to us after we did that? Nothing. So... <laughs> Yeah, yet again, another repeating narrative of everything that we cover is that nobody's ever held accountable for this shit. Right. Now, on McFarland, he, he was also a son of a Texas Democratic congressman, so he's a Texas person, too. Entered the Naval Academy, um, and then also entered the Marine Corps. So there's that little pattern. He served two tours in Vietnam. Received- it is crazy, too, how, like, in later, that was almost a requirement if you wanted to be involved and conservative right. politics is that you needed to have a military background sure. you needed to have connections but the trump administration really did smash all that i mean george bush the son um when he was president still had all of those requirements he still had all of the same you know cronyisms involved mm. but uh trump yeah it just didn't have that i mean well, he he basically filled that all with like his family members and like none of them have been in the military no. and None of them, I mean, no. just none of that shit. No, but you know what's funny, though, too, is that um, when you study, like, all these different aspects of, like, right wing, which I, I study more about the right wing than the left wing, just because I just find it endlessly, they're, the horror of what they are, like, endlessly fascinating. But, um, you know, fascists and uh, crazy preachers and hucksters they all have like a similar con man quality, right? Like you, like Hitler would get up there, scream, spittle, sweat. He was like furious, like insane. Mussolini's insane, you know. And and a lot of these preachers, uh, right now I'm reading about Hitler's friends in America, and it's like all these uh, Christian, Christian people, a Catholic priest, Father Coughlin, um, insane. Like, you know, uh, people that were like, thought that the Nazis were pretty decent people. But a lot of them were like these ranting, like, you know, the same kind of uh, rhetoric and shit. But anyway, it's all to, it's all to shite you. It's all to distract you with emotion so they can get you to do what they want you to do. But anyway, um, so McFarlane, uh, he served his two tours in Vietnam. He gets a master's degree in strategic studies. Um, with the highest honors from Geneva Institute of International Studies um, that has strong links to the United Nations and um, runs, a, uh, runs a joint degree program with universities such as the Smith College and Yale University. But um, anyways, these, these, this university was like, when you go back and research a little bit about it, it's kind of like, during the, the League of Nations, you know, before the UN, there was like, uh, this college was established to educate people from all over the world, basically how to participate in world government. It was the first higher education that focused specifically on becoming part of the, you know, World Health Organization, the UN, the, the World Bank, the world this, the world that, like that's what it was all about. So, anyways, McFarland uh, went to that. Um, and then after he, after he got involved in government and resigned, um, because he had, he had a couple of different, uh, you know, Reagan, in 81, Reagan appointed him to the Department of State. In 82, appointed him to the Department of National Security Advisor. And in 83, he was a special re- representative um, in the, uh, I have the MB, but I can't remember what I what that initial stands for. But anyway, so he had multiple different positions um, in the in the Reagan's administration. But then he resigned over the Iran Contra stuff, and then he he became co-founder and director of IP3, 
which stands for International Peace, Power, and Prosperity, which is a consortium of firms wanting to build nuclear reactors in Saudi Arabia. That is uh, led by retired U.S. military commanders and former White House officials. Now, Michael Flynn, the nut job, who's the part of the QAnon thing, claims that he works with uh, McFarlane in this corporate entity. Wow, really? And McFarlane says, no, that's not true. But of course, would you want to be affiliated with Michael <laughs> Flynn, the new, the new QAnon cult leader? Like, where is he even at right now? Does anyone even know what's going on with Michael Flynn? I don't know. I haven't heard anything about it. To be honest, uh, since Trump's presidency ended, I haven't heard much of any of any of it from any of them. I I feel like they just don't talk about him on the news. And I'm like, all right, well, out I of look, sight, out of mind. You know how I am with drive-by media. I try to look up some stuff. I mean, and there's a lot of prosecutions that have happened. There's a lot of civil litigation that's going on against the lawyers who made false claims against Dominion. There's a lot of that shit going on. Uh, the media is very scared right now because Fox News has been uh, indicated in some of these lawsuits for defamation because of their participation in complete, utter fucking lies about a lot of shit. Um, and they're getting around it right now saying that they're just commentary. They're not really news. They're just, they just have commenters. Laura Ingrams isn't a news person. She's just a commenter. Commentator. Well, I mean, when your name is Fox News. Right. I mean... <laughs> It's kind of ludicrous, but that's what they, so, I mean, we'll have to see how all that fallout comes, but yeah, I mean, I, I did see a link where Giuliani made some video with him wearing an Abe Lincoln costume, and I, I didn't watch the video, because I'm like, I, I gotta stay focused, <laughs> and I feel like you watch something Giuliani does, and your brain kind of melts a little bit, <laughs> but, um, so that's most of our players, um, I think, um, oh, and there's Michael Ledeen, who is, whew, Michael Ledeen is like a right-wing neocon who's been in government for literally ever. And um, if you look him up at Wikipedia, it says that he's a professional bridge player. <laughs> Which is weird. Like, where does all his money come from? Like, it's a professional bridge player? Really? Like, maybe somebody just put that shit in there. Like, I don't, you know, Wikipedia, people can edit it. But anyways... He and Barbara Ledeen, his wife, are very involved in serious right-wing shenanigans. Like, she was the one who offered to pay, like, $30,000 or something for email, Hillary's emails. She put, like, a huge amount of money out there and was like, the first person who brings me her emails is going to get, like, she put, like, a, what do you call that? Like, a um, bounty. A bounty on Hillary's emails. Like, and if I remember correctly, I read a book about, um, Vietnam and um it was talking about the dispute over how the Vietnam war was run but but anyways um I swear they were mentioned in there that they had some kind of like they Who, financed Michael Ledeen, Michael Ledeen and yeah, his he wife was, financed uh, some kind of covert military operation maybe it was against Cuba he was a consultant for the National Security Council a consultant um, for <clears throat> He wasn't actually on the national security. He no. was a consultant. How do you get to but just... But he, he was involved in um, the reassessment on the situation with Iran, and he met with Gabonifar. Yeah, he met with Gabonifar, and then also somebody had suggested that he be the um, the intermediary with Israel. Like, mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and somebody else was against it. I can't remember who was for it, who was against it. But he just was like, fuck y'all. He goes over and has a private meeting with Shimon Perez, the prime minister of Israel. Like, mm -hmm. who does that? Who are you that you can just take a plane and fly over to meet with the prime minister of Israel? Like, yeah, this guy's just like a consultant. And now suddenly he can just like invite himself into this underground. I want to ask, uh, I want to ask, and he's super pro-Israel, obviously. And, you know, I just want to ask somebody like Sean Hannity, who is constantly like haranguing about these quote unelected bureaucrats in government like lieutenant colonel vinman and people with the state department who are just appointed positions they're not elected that they should have no business conducting foreign policy or implementing foreign policy because they're not elected people who elected michael ladine i want to ask sean hannity who fucking elected michael ladine to go and do foreign foreign policy business on behalf of the united states people because i know i fucking vote for him I don't even think his name's ever been on the ballot anywhere. No. So. Absolutely not. There's an unelected 
bureaucrat who's not even a bureaucrat. He's not even, he's just a guy. Like, I don't know. That's crazy to me. But their name has popped up a couple times. Like, and I think they live in Texas, if I'm right. (laughs) Texas is the root of all evil. (laughs) (laughs) Something in the water in Texas. I won't argue that at all. I don't know anything good that's come out of Texas. So now we've got all of our players. um, And... I think on our next episode, we're going to pick up in 1985 yep. because we covered kind of the beginnings of it, how it got started, why it got started. And then we got up to like 1984. And then there's a huge amount of stuff that happens in 1985. This is basically when all of the weapons and um, trading actually starts happening. There was like a couple before that, but this is the majority of. Right. Um, I think before 85, there was like they had to arrange them through those separate companies. Right. And then they created the enterprise and got the secret bank account set up. So then stuff really starts flowing in 1985. So I think it's we're going to pick up the next time. And um, then after we cover that, um, we'll get into the other aspects, the collateral damage of the Contras, um, you know, death squads and the drug trade right and right. how that all impacted go over the trials too and uh like i said most of the people involved never really ended up serving any time a couple of low ball players but for the majority uh <laughs> no consequences really but yeah we'll get into all of that on the next episode wasn't ollie north sentenced to be the head of the nra oh wait no they wanted him <laughs> yeah and then for they got a, rid of him for a too. minute they wanted him they had him he was president of the nra short and then they got rid of him for some kind of uh damaging uh, information oh on him I'm like wow what a shocker oh ollie north brought damaging incriminating evidence like wow who'd have guessed mr he was, shredder he was trying to ex- extort someone i think is what oh they i don't God. remember but yeah <laughs> shocker right most of these other people are dead now though yeah reagan's dead burning hell uh william casey's dead uh bush is w yeah, yeah he's dead most of them are dead Mm-hmm. Ollie North is still alive and kicking though. But anyway, yeah, we'll pick it up on uh, the next episode. This is Juke signing off. And this is Mick signing off. <laughs>